Hey everyone, it's Megan Bowen, and you are listening to the Unwritten Playbook Podcast, where we showcase how smart and interesting people are breaking away from how things have always been done and charting a new path. We will explore topics ranging from marketing, sales, customer success, and also personal development and leadership themes. Join us to learn from pioneers who are paving the way for what the future brings. Hey everyone, welcome to the Unwritten Playbook, where we talk to interesting people who are rejecting a status quo and paving a new way. I'm really excited for my guest today, Colin Cadmus, podcast host, consultant, advisor, former VP, and founder of his new business, Colin Cadmus LLC. Welcome to the show, Colin. Thank you for being here. Hey, Megan. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to get into this topic today. We were chatting a little bit before we hit record, and I think we both have a lot of, a lot of things to say uh, about this topic. Before we get in, though, I'd love to give you an opportunity to um, share a little bit more about your story. And so tell us a little bit more beyond my intro um, of you know who you are, what you've done, um, and like I always say, why we should care. Um, share a little bit more about, about your history and, and where you've been and what you've done. Sure. So I like to say I'm just a guy who got into sales and found some success uh, and just kind of kept following it Um, from New Jersey, got into retail management after college. It was 2008, peak of the recession. Uh, It was not a good time to be entering the job market, but uh, took a retail management job, did it for four years. It was CVS Pharmacy, interned in their headquarters and, and all that stuff. So I was just thankful to have a job, but but I became pretty unhappy, you know, uh, four years into that and knew I needed a change. Didn't really know what that change was, but long story short, I packed a U-Haul and left Rhode Island and came back home to New Jersey. Eventually found my way, uh, in an interview at a company called single platform, uh, which had just been acquired for a hundred million dollars. They're growing rapidly and hiring a lot of entry level salespeople. And so I took a job there, which grew into a sales leadership role where I was able to <clears throat> hire over 150 people in like nine months that the growth was enormous. So I learned a lot really, really quickly there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after that, I went to be a first time VP of sales at doctor.com, which actually just got acquired uh, like a week ago, which is cool. Uh, and then I went to be a VP of sales at Aircall. In between there, I tried to start my own company and pretty much failed miserably and underestimated how hard it was. But uh uh, yeah, so I went back to doing what I was great at at Aircall. Did that for another couple of years. Then COVID hit, and and it's been crazy. Twenty twenty, like lost my job. Had to figure out what the heck I'm going to do. Uh, and that's how we'll, we'll get into. I, I know the topic and everything, but um, yeah. Then I got into consulting and just wanted to figure out a way that I could still do what I love to do, uh, but be in a little bit more control of of my career and my schedule. And so that's what's led me to what I'm doing today. Yeah, no, your your story is awesome. And I know um, a lot of people know about you and, and your story because you're super active on LinkedIn and add a lot of value to the community. And, you know, I have a lot of, a lot of empathy. I lost my job in late 2019 as well, um, uh, just sort of as a result of the whole VC-backed startup world and the, the risks um, inherent in that. And so definitely know what that's like. It is not fun, but I do feel like everything happens for a reason. And it's really awesome to see your early success with your new business. And I know you, you've just launched a podcast. And so, um, you know, despite that, I think you've really made the best um, out of out of 2020, even though you've had some things stacked against you. And so let's get into it, though. The question that I always ask to kick off the conversation um, is to to say, you know, what 
what is the status quo you reject and and why do you reject it? Tell me a little bit more. Yeah. So there's a lot of status quos. I, I object. Anyone who follows me knows that, but uh, I thought for this conversation and we chatted a bit before what, <clears throat> what I think is, is sort of top of mind for both of us. And it's a hot topic just in general is just the VC model. Right. And you just alluded to it. Um, this whole VC venture backed startup model. And um, there's a lot of good that comes from it, right? You're able to build great businesses and, and people can find a lot of success and they're able to do it without their own money because they're getting money from VCs. And VCs are able to be successful because they can invest a portfolio, uh, invest in a portfolio of, let's say, I don't know, 20 companies, right? They build up a fund of X million dollars. They put it out into 20 companies and they expect that one or two of them will be wildly successful and it'll make up for all the other investments. And so I think that that foundational model is what leads to a lot of problems that you and I have both been victims of. Lots of people we know are victims of, uh, which is just really that you have a literally a business model where you have 20 companies that are, are now hiring people. They're bringing on customers. Uh, people are dedicating their lives in many ways uh, to these businesses, but the financial backing, the institutions that are actually backing these companies financially, they only expect a very small percentage of them to succeed. And that means a lot of people are going to end up in unfortunate situations. And it's something that no one really talks about. I think we talk about, I would say where you probably hear it the most is, is people talking about the average tenure of a VP of sales. And that's what's affected me the most in my career. Uh, and it's unfortunate because when I got into this line of work, <clears throat> I had no idea that striving to become a VP actually had a lot of downside. I had no clue. I thought that that was incredible. That was what I wanted to do. I got on the phones cold calling. I saw my VP of sales, you know, leading this whole team. I said, this is awesome. I want to do this like this. There would be not a single notion in my head that there would be significant downsides to my career to pick that path. Um, and, and so no one talks about it enough. And that's why I'm always, always happy to get on a podcast and talk about it because uh, it doesn't mean the world's ending and it doesn't mean we can't do these jobs and stuff, but it means people should be aware. And I think that if they are, we can position ourselves better in the market. We can, we can negotiate for better terms and we can put ourselves in a position where, uh, you know, you don't sign a three-year lease in January, get hit with COVID and lose your job right? Yeah. Which is a familiar story for me. <laughs> and so like, uh, I, I think that that's, that's the status quo I reject is just in general. And I'll be more specific by just saying, I reject that 18 months average tenure for a VP of sales is acceptable. I think it's unacceptable and something has to be done about it. Absolutely. And you know, one, one thing that I think about a lot is sort of like, when, when did this mindset really shift and change over the last, you know, couple of decades. It seems, I think a huge factor contributing to this problem is the growth at all costs mindset that these founders uh, raise all this money from these investors. Um, they are put under this incredible pressure to grow as quickly as possible. Um, they, uh, you know, hire a bunch of salespeople to, you know, through brute force, um, get that growth as quickly as possible. And in many cases, they can be very successful at doing that. Um, but With top line growth, exactly. Top line yeah. growth, not healthy growth, not growing the business in a sustainable way. Um, you know, looking at people as expendable. Well, if it doesn't work out, then we'll just lay off all of these people. Right. And one thing I'm curious if you have an opinion on is, um, like, I'm trying to think like, when did this become normal and acceptable? And, um, you know, I've been guilty of it too, in a leadership position where you can, it's, it's kind of easy to just like, 
get sucked up into the mindset and be like, we have to figure it out. We have to figure out what, what we can do. So I, I empathize with the founders that have this pressure and that push that pressure on to their team. I don't agree with it, but I, I can see why these things happen. And um, you know, as I look back, like it didn't always used to be this way. And it's like, what, what were the series of events or factors that, that you think, you know, sort of led to this, this yeah. reality that we're all dealing with today? Yeah. So I don't know if it hasn't always been this way. It has been for as long as I've been in, in SAS, at least I think, but I'm young, right. I started in 2012. Uh, we're probably around, you know, been in the, in the game as equally amount of time. Um, but I, I think it comes back to what I said before it's, it's the VC model. Right. And so if you have those 20 companies invested, you know, a portfolio of 20 companies that I'm invested in, I only need two of them to be successful. What I need is for those two to be unicorns. And so what that means is that every company in my portfolio, what I, as an investor and as a board board member or a chairman, what I'm pushing them to do is to hit unicorn numbers. And the majority of companies are not going to be unicorns. And the reality is that's okay. As long as they don't try to be unicorns, they can still build long-term sustainable, healthy businesses. But if a non-unicorn is trying to be a unicorn and they're spending money like crazy, that's where the problems come in because it's not sustainable and they end up going out of business too quickly. But again, that's okay for the VC right? Because they're only banking on one or two of them actually becoming unicorns. Meanwhile, they're pushing all of them to hit those metrics, to hit those ridiculous growth numbers that only the best companies in the world do. And that's a very flawed system because if you were actually just building that business with your own money and you didn't have a VC telling you what you need to do, you wouldn't be aiming for this just ridiculous hockey stick growth that like is the cookie cutter perfect company. You would just be aiming for improvement and, and profitability and scalability. And you can do that perhaps at a, at a much smaller sense with much less cash burn. Um, but maybe that isn't enough growth to make it lucrative for the VC. And that's often the case. And that's why they have this pressure. You're either going to become a unicorn or you're going to die. And I think many great companies end up getting forced down that, that hole when they could have just been a great business, not a unicorn, but they could have been a great player in the space. They could have been uh, you know, have a lot of healthy, happy customers, a lot of happy employees earning good money. And the businesses don't need to suffer like that. Uh, but when they're being forced to hire a hundred salespeople, you know, when the product uh, is half developed or they're being forced to go up market to enterprise when the product's not ready for it, all these things, uh, it's, it's just short-term thinking. But again, it all comes back to that VC model. They know that and they don't care. They want to invest in 20 companies, push all of them to be unicorns and hope that one or two do. Yeah, it's so true. And I think you uh, were implying a really interesting point that I've seen as well. And um, to bring it back to, um, you know, the, the short tenure of a head of sales, it's surprising to me. And, you know, in some of the companies that I've been at, if I've been managing sales and success, um, how regardless of, um, you know, what else is going on in the company, the product isn't really fully developed um, or X. Which it never is which it never is. Right. Um, it always seems like, like growth is the, the head of revenue, the head of sales, um, they're on the hook regardless. And, and no other leader leader within the organization seems to, um, deal with that level of pressure or the repercussions if those, 
growth goals aren't hit. Um, but you could make the argument that, you know, the head of product should be just as on the hook. Cause if the product isn't good, like, you know, sell the best seller in the world can, you know, can't sell a bad product <laughs> or if they can, they can only sell so much of it. <laughs> well, they, they, they sell it. They just lie to the customers and then hand it to your customer success team to, to deal with it. <laughs> well, and then that's the type of behavior that that pressure leads to, right. Is it just yeah. leads people to cutting corners and doing whatever they have to do. Um, but you're right that the sales leader is usually the one, um, you know, with the bullseye on their head, they're usually the one to take the fall. And again, it just all ties back to that, that model of we're going to push 20 companies in our portfolio to become unicorns. And in order to do that, we're looking at revenue growth. And if the revenue growth isn't there, there's only one acceptable answer to the VC and it's the sales leader is not doing their job well enough. They cannot even comprehend the fact that not all 20 of their companies are going to be unicorns, right? Because that doesn't work for their, their model. They want, they know not all 20 are going to become unicorns, but they want to push all of them to get there. And they will continue to churn out employees until they, they either get there or run out of money. And so that's the decision that often is made. And I think it also comes from, it's not always the VC, right? Oftentimes, <clears throat> I think it's the CEOs and, and the founders that are afraid to take the blame on themselves perhaps, or they're afraid to actually set honest expectations. And I think that's probably more often the truth because they know when they go in there, when they pitch for a new round or, or they're meeting with their board or whatever, they have to be able to make a compelling story that they're going to be able to get uh, that very specific year over year growth that VCs are looking for. Right. And it's something like you want to triple your business for the first three years, then double it for the next two. Then it's like, it drops off from there, the growth rate, but like there's very specific benchmarks that a VC is, is looking for in your business. And it's, it's almost ridiculous. They don't even care how you got there. Like if you fake it, if you lie to your customers, if anything, like they say they do due diligence, but really like the, if they see those numbers, they get very excited. Right. And so that's what ends up happening is you create this culture of, of, we just have to get this growth rate. We have to get this number and we know it's possible because we don't have a choice. Yeah. And that's the type of pressure that's put on them. And so then it, it, it leads to burnout. It leads to disengagement. It leads to, you know, unhappy teams. It leads to great people losing their jobs. Uh, and, and you know that what I always think is funny about it is when you lose that job and one of the people from your board calls you next week and offers you a new job on one of their other companies they're invested in, that's how, you know, when that happened to me, that's how I said to myself, this system is complete BS. Yeah because you cannot sit on one board and say like, we need a new sales leader and bring them in for almost an identical company uh, on your other board. Like they know they're playing this game. And, and that's in that moment, I knew that by the way that conversation went that they knew none of this is right. They just accept it. Cause it's the system that, uh, that ultimately makes VCs and founders rich that we have at least some of them. Yeah. I think that you just hit on another point, which I think it creates sort of a vicious cycle, which is this, um, goal setting, like ultimately goals are just like, I want to hit this revenue number. So this is the goal. And then they're the unrelated goal, to the business itself. Exactly. It's unrealistic. Somebody, you know, made it up in a spreadsheet backed into quarterly goals from there. Yeah. And then the goal is missed. And they're just like, I'm shocked. Why didn't we hit this goal? And it's like, you literally made the goal up yeah. <laughs> backed yeah. into the goal. You then gave me the goal. Um, you knew that we probably wouldn't hit it. And now you're pretending you're surprised that we didn't yeah. hit the goal. And like, I've seen that happen 
over and over and over again and time and time again. And, you know, I've been in that situation where I'm like, how did we get to this number? And like, you know, oh, well, we're just going to raise quotas. And so that's how we'll hit that. I'm just like, well, can we, can the team support that? Like, (laughs) raising quotas is not a growth lever. Yeah. So like, I'm sure you've had your own experiences with that, but I feel like that's a huge, I mean, maybe that's a consequence of the broader system issue that you're describing, but, but that's what creates the pressure to hire, um, you know, the burnout, all of those things that you described. And then now you're, you're finding yourself overextended and overinvested to hit this number that somebody made up. And then you're on the hook to lay people off or lose your job. Right. It's yeah. Uh, it, 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 like you said, it does all tie back to the bigger picture. And I think what people fail to realize oftentimes is that even when a company is burning significant amounts of cash, uh, or raising, you know, rounds at ridiculous valuations and stuff. Uh, even if the company's not becoming profitable, oftentimes the founders and the investors are still getting rich as that process goes on. Uh, Cause they'll take money off the table every time they raise a new round. And so, you know, you could have a company, I think we both know one, uh, uh, we works probably a good example, right. That, that everyone's familiar with where like, you just kind of see them just continuing to make decisions that, from outside looking in, you're like, how are they ever going to become profitable if they just keep doing this? And then at a certain point you have to wonder like, do they even, do they even care about becoming profitable? Or like, they're just so interested in continuing to raise the next round of funding at a higher valuation because they're becoming mega millionaires in the process. Cause each time they do that, for those who are listening, here's the way it works. If I'm a founder, let's say I own 20% of my business. My other founder maybe owns 20% and maybe the rest is with VCs or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Every time I raise a round of funding, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to increase the value of the stock that I own, right? I want to make it worth more money, but it's not actually worth more money yet. It's only worth more money on paper, but that's okay. Because if when I raise this next round of funding and my stock was worth $5 a share before this round, but now I've got a VC who wants to invest another $20 million and they're raising uh, the valuation of the business. Now my shares would be worth $10. They're doubling money or maybe they're worth 20. Maybe it's it's significant, right? Mm -hmm. I can negotiate in that transaction to sell some of my shares today during this this new round of funding. So here's a company that is not profitable, uh, is probably not even in in close sight of profitability. Uh, They have probably executives who are getting blamed and fired for missing targets currently in the current time, but we're going to raise $20 million. The founders are going to take 10 million of that 20 or, or let's call it five, whatever. They're going to take that off the table and into their personal bank accounts. They're going to own a little bit less of the company, but they're rich. And so now the same pressure that's on everyone else in the company to make it successful so that we can earn some money. That pressure is not really on the founders or the early investors who just got wealthy off of the business that you still think has not reached the finish line yet. And so this stuff happens all the time. And, and you see companies oftentimes like these stories where they just, they, they have explosive growth. They raise tons and tons of money and then they disappear and you're and, and jewel, right? Jewel, the nicotine, uh, uh, vape pen. If you've yeah. heard about this company, like they got destroyed. The founders are mega rich, mega rich. Cause they already took the money off the table, even though that company got destroyed through government regulations and whatnot, uh, that founders have already taken so much money off the table that they're already rich from a company that wasn't profitable. And so I think that just gives perspective as to, to the things you were alluding to as to like why this stuff happens and, yeah. and why a CEO comes to you and they're like, how come we didn't hit this goal? Even they knew they, knew they weren't going to hit it because they're playing the game too. 
They're, they're just, they're just trying to raise the valuation, keep that pressure on you, whether they think they can do it or not. Uh, and as long as they, and this is what it comes down to, they just have to be able to tell a compelling story to their board in every board meeting. And then when they go to raise the next round, they have to tell a compelling story as to why you should invest and why the business is doing better and it's worth more. If they can keep doing that, they actually don't need to care about the long-term success of the business. I'm not insinuating that all of them don't, but I am insinuating that probably some, if not many, are probably in that ballpark. And maybe they don't intend to get there, but when that first $5 million hits their bank account, you know, I think the way you think about things starts to change a little bit because the pressure is, is a little bit less when you have that kind of money. Yeah, it's true. And I think, you know, this is a tough one because, you know, my next, my next question is always like, what, you know, what are you doing about it? How are you going to fix this? You know, we reject the status quo and how are we going to fix things going forward? And so this is a big problem. This is a systemic sort of historical entrenched problem that is not going to go away overnight. You know, I thought with, um, you know, WeWork was a big, shining example of this problem. And when that happened and all the backlash and the news it got, I kind of thought, you know, maybe this, maybe this will change things. And, you know, I think for a hot minute, it, it, you know, people were talking about, you know, rejecting the model and changing it, but then a little time goes by and everyone's just back to normal, right? Back to normal. And, and that's really happening. So it's like, you know, what can someone like you do about it? Someone like me, someone listening, um, are there things that we can do, you know, to help influence change? Are there things that we can do to protect ourselves or put ourselves in a, in a, in the best possible situation within our careers to be successful? I'd love to love to get your thoughts on, you know, what any individual can do um, against this huge systemic problem that we're up against. Yeah. So there are things that can be done. It depends on who you are and, and, you know, where, where you sit in an organization or what kind of leverage you have. But um, there are things that are being done right today. I, I know that like we're joining communities like Revenue Collective and, and people are coming together and they're just actually starting to talk about this stuff and strategize on how they can just make the conditions and terms just a little bit better for themselves. And if, as we continue to do that, things just keep getting a little better, a little better. And so <clears throat> I do think eventually some of these things will change. Some of them will have to. Uh, you look at Y Combinator, for those who are familiar, Sam Altman has, uh, has, has taken it upon himself to try to solve uh, the problem with how stock options are, are dealt with, right? We all know how unfair those can be. Company tells you, uh, here's all this equity and, and you know, you're, we're going we're gonna to have a big exit and it's going to be so much fun. And, you know, here's your stock options. But what they don't tell you is if I fire you or if you quit, you have 90 days to buy them. And most employees don't have the money to do that. And so that little tiny detail uh, is basically a company's way of saying, we actually don't want you to have this equity. Um, and, and that's just another glaring ex- example of all of these problems. But my point is that, uh, you know, Sam Altman at Y Combinator has drafted up new legal paperwork that he wants to become the default stock option paperwork for all of SaaS. Uh, and it solves for that problem. It gives people 10 years to exercise their options after they leave the company, which is the appropriate amount of time that it, it should be because <clears throat> they may not be worth anything for 10 years. And so what am I doing about it? What can I, what can other people do about it? A, it's understanding how much leverage you have before you negotiate a job for yourself and utilizing that leverage, right? And and not accepting the status quo. And so, you know, if you're a VP of sales getting hired for a job and granted, if you're a first time VP of sales and you're a stretch hire, you don't have much leverage, but if you've done it before, the people really, really want you there, you know, you can get some sort of protection. A, you can get 
you should be able to push for 10 year exercise period on your stock options. Mm -hmm. Um, B you should probably push for, you know, not having some ridiculous cliff period, right? Like a six month cliff or, or a 12 month cliff. You should push to not have that for me. What am I doing about it? Cause, uh, you know, for me, I just stopped working full time. Uh, I basically just made the decision and I don't know if I'll stick with this forever. I, I know that it's working for me now, which is just, if you want to work with me, uh, we're going to do it on a contractual basis, right? And you're not hiring Colin Cadmus, you're, uh, you're, you're hiring Colin Cadmus LLC. And there's, there's, there's legal protection for myself in, in the format of doing it that way. I am not your employee. And we have very clear terms agreed on in a contract that you're going to pay me X uh, per month for X number of months. And if we want to continue the engagement after that, we can do that. If not, you know, we don't have to. And so it takes a lot of pressure off of me because the, the hard part, like when you realize that, like, you're probably going to just get fired someday and you know, it's coming, mm-hmm. it's really scary. And, and it, and it puts so much so much anxiety and so much stress on you when you know that you're doing everything you can. You actually think you're doing a great job. People around you think you're doing a great job, but you have this feeling that for something that's out of your control, you're probably going to lose your job. And I hate to say it, but like all the VPs of sales I know who've been around the block, we just kind of live like that. You just kind of accept that feeling of knowing that it's coming someday and like any meeting you walk into could be that meeting. Uh, it's just, it's a lot of stress to live with and to carry on your shoulders and it definitely affects your work and it's just not good for anyone. So for me, I've been able to eliminate that by, by doing contractual based work. Now there are definitely downsides, right? Like I'm my own SDR, uh, I'm my own AE. I have to run, you know, sales calls with potential clients and they're essentially interviews to their two-sided interviews. Um, but when you have a full-time job, you don't have to do that all the time. For me, I have to do that to keep clients in the pipeline. Um, but I, for, for right now, I, I'll choose that over, uh, you know, dedicating myself and, you know, I, I just pour my heart and soul into the work that I do. And when I build a sales team, I fall in love with them. Like, like I, it is my life. And to get that torn away from you, um, without having a say in it, is, is in many ways worse than like some of the worst breakups I've been through. Cause it's so many people and it's their careers and it's their lives that you now felt responsible for. And all of a sudden you don't even have access to them. And that's what it's like to get fired after you hire a hundred people or whatnot. Um, and, and build a very successful team that could go on to do great things. Um, but you're just kind of off in the dust. And typically as a VP, when that acquisition comes around, like you'll get your money, but like, you're probably not at the party. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I had, I took a similar transition as, as you of sort of getting out of the VC backed, you know, startup world after, you know, 15 years of it and being at five different, you know, VC backed startups and having my own ups and downs. And there is something really empowering to be, you know, a a part of a small business, um, no investors, um, you know, building slowly and steadily, um, choosing the right customers to work with where it really makes sense. And, you know, I think similarly, you know, at, at Refine Labs, we're really focused on, we believe in the long game and we believe in growing businesses responsibly. And so, you know, my why of why I wanted to, you know, sort of join forces with Chris and, and figure this out is how many companies can we help and put them on a different path, um, 
of more sustainable growth, um, better decision-making, um, you know, being more customer centric, um, with everything from how you market, how you sell, how you retain. <clears throat> and, you know, I think for people like us that have, um, you know, had careers and are able to make decisions like this, I think, I think it's an empowering one and it's a great one, but there are a lot of, you know, younger people out there looking for their entry level jobs. Um, and I think one point is like, I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea for, you know, any, anyone at that stage in their career to join a startup. Like it can be an incredible learning experience. Um, but I think one of the things that, um, you know, I encourage people to do, it's like, you can ask, the tough questions, like ask about their financials, their burn, their runway, like really understand what you're getting into. All the great points you brought up about stock option packages, um, ask about that and and how those um, you know agreements are structured. Um, if you it's are- It's good if you ask, it's actually a red flag if you don't ask. Exactly, and so people should be, you know, even if it's your first job out of college, you should be empowered and educated to ask those questions so that you fully know what you're getting into. And you know, the one the lesson that I've learned in my career, um, and I feel like you, you're probably the same way based on some of the things we were just describing. But you know, I just I dedicated my whole life to some of these companies, and then in a minute like the rug is pulled out from under you. And I think what I, what I know now and what I wish I knew before and a message I think that is important, especially for people looking for their first or second job is, you know, you have to look out for number one, which is yourself. And your company doesn't care about you. They, they don't. And it's not that the people within the company don't care about you. I think that they do. You loved your sales team, right? So people within companies can care about it, but the company doesn't. And when the that's company, so well said, yeah. yeah, when you're in a bad situation, doesn't matter how long you've been there, how, how much you've worked. Um, you know, I, I dedicated like 15 hours a day for two and a half years to a company for them to just be like, see you later. Yeah. Um, and it's taking it's, emails on vacation, answering them on the weekends. You'd literally pour your heart and soul into it. It's so true. So, all right. I like to feel like we could go on and on and on about this, but I'm curious to get your take on two more things. So I like to do this as we're wrapping up the episode. So I like to do what I call a future cast 10 years from now. It's 2030. What do you hope is true? based on what we're talking about, what changes have happened. Um, you know, if you're looking, uh, if you're looking 10 years ahead through an optimistic lens, what do you hope to be the case? From a high level, I, I hope that people are just treated fairly. Um, I'm okay with the American way of like, you can get fired at any time. Like I, I like that. I, I've, I work with clients internationally. I've worked at Aircall, which is international. Like a lot of downsides to doing things with too much protection for the employees. Uh, other countries have sort of taken that route on, on not just startups, but just in general employment that they're, they're heavily, heavily protected. Uh, I don't think that's the route. Uh, I think it's about fairness. And I, and I think the answers to the problems are actually really simple and really obvious, but the, the hard part is convincing the right people to care about them. You know, like Sam Altman, what he put together for stock options, very simple. He's changed a few things that were blatantly unfair uh, that shouldn't be that way. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem is that the people who actually can make the decision, do we want to switch to that or not? They don't have enough reason to care today. 
and so if you ask me what happens in 10 years, what do I hope for? I hope that they have enough reason to care. I hope that we've put enough pressure on them uh, to, to push, to change the status quo, to make things fair, that eventually it changes. And as we see in our country today, like that's how change happens, right? We've seen it over hundreds of years, but like, and this year we've seen it more than ever that when the people want change, if we speak loud enough, some things can actually start to change. Uh, and I'm not saying that we should go riot or protest over VC model, but uh, you know, it's, it's about putting enough pressure on them. And if VCs start to realize, wow, every executive we're trying to hire for our companies, they're now asking for this, they're pushing for this, they're negotiating for this, these things. Eventually they may start to say, maybe we should revisit the, the paperwork that we use for this or how we think about that. Or maybe, maybe we'll get better sales growth if we actually just kept a VP of sales here for four years so they could really do their job and, and, and not get cut short. And maybe we have to accept that, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day and, and maybe just the, I'll, I'll rewind back to this. If I can sum it up, cause now I'm rambling on again. If I can sum it up to one thing in 10 years, uh, I would hope that it can be in addition to being fair, I would hope that it could be accepted that great companies don't need to grow at the same rate as the best unicorn in, in Silicon Valley. And if we can accept that and we could be okay with building businesses slow and steady, uh, instead of having two unicorns out of every 20 I invested in, maybe I can have 10, you know, relatively smooth sailing businesses that are on a longer term trajectory to profitability, but a healthy business. Uh, and maybe that's not as much money, or maybe it's the same amount of money, but it's more people involved whose lives and careers are, are not getting disrupted constantly. And so that's what I would like to see happen. I don't know if it ever will. And I don't want to sound like a complainer, like I'm in this business and I'm choosing to stay in it. I've chosen to change the way that I'm going to be in it. Uh, but I'm here and, and one way or another, like I, I love what we do and I'll continue to you know, to try to help build sales teams and help guide companies in, in the right way and help them avoid some of these mistakes, help give them guidance. But uh, yeah, I, I love what you guys are doing at Refine Labs. It's very much aligned with what I'm doing. If we can help from the outside in and get into these companies, I don't know what stage you guys work with, but I'm focused on early stage so that I can help guide them through this. And maybe I can help you know, avoid that VP that they would have hired and got fired in six months. I can help them avoid making that decision, you know? And so- yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, well said. I, I totally uh, agree with you. And, you know, lastly, I always like to um, leave people with some actionable tactical advice. We actually spoke about, you know, a lot of different things that people can do tactically, you know, whether they're looking for a job, whether they're a VP of sales, how they can protect themselves. But, um, you know, out of everything that we've talked about today, um, if people are only taking away one actionable piece of advice, um, what comes to mind? to you? What, what do you want to leave people with? Yeah. So I'll keep it high level so that it applies to, you know, executives or, or entry level roles. Uh, and you touched on it a bit. The, the biggest piece of advice is you need to know what you're getting yourself into when you take a job. And in order to do that, you have to ask the right questions. You have to understand the business. And if you really want to understand it, you need to do some research just about understanding SaaS metrics and growth metrics and burn rates and all of this stuff uh, to really know what you're getting yourself into. Uh, that's the best thing you can do today because you're not going to be able to change at all. Of course, you can try to ask for the 10-year vest and little things like that. Uh, but the most important thing is to just know what you're getting yourself into, understand what the risk is so that if something does go wrong, at least you're not blindsided and, and you could have been prepared for it. Yeah, it's great advice. Um, so uh, where can people find out more about what you're up to? Um, I know you're active on LinkedIn. You've just launched, launched a podcast. Um, give us all your info so people can find you. 
Sure. Yeah. I'm Colin Cadmus. I'm, I'm on everywhere. Uh, LinkedIn, Twitter. I, I don't tweet really much. I'm on Instagram, mostly, mostly LinkedIn. Uh, my website, colincadmus.com has some content. It's, it's not the most beautiful website in the world, but uh, I built it in like five minutes when I decided I was starting a company. Um, yeah, that's it. And I've got a podcast coming out where we're still filming the first season. We're going to launch it like kind of Netflix style, like all at once. Um, hopefully around the new year, I'll be launching that. And so, uh, yeah, check it out, but you can find it all on, on LinkedIn or my website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Colin. It was really awesome to talk about this. I think a really, really important topic. Um, So thanks again for coming on the show and uh, I'll catch you on LinkedIn. Thanks for having me.